Oh, man. We are breaking records here at hashtag CNFHQ. Four weeks in a row of a new episode of the podcast. Now, granted, I, I did start this podcast back in 2013, so we're coming up on four full years of it being available to the public and, quote-unquote, only 35 episodes. But it's still a big step in the consistency of the product. And this year, it's something I'm real excited about, something I'm really leaning into. And I'm just trying to focus on maybe this one thing, promoting great writers, promoting great creators of nonfiction, whether that be filmmakers or baseball coaches, anyone who has their finger on some sort of pulse of nonfiction, creative nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, that grants you a stamp of a stamp of the passport into hashtag CNFHQ. And uh, we get to talk shop, which is always a lot of fun. And uh, this week, episode 35, Sybil Baker. She is the author of Immigration Essays by CNR Press. Uh, it's too bad uh, immigration isn't a very topical subject right now. It's just, it's just bad timing for Sybil. Um, but in all seriousness, it's a wonderful collection of essays. A kick-ass book cover, so when you buy the book... I mean, read it, of course, but come on, let's buy it. Let's support our writers, support authors. It is uh, just a great, uh, great collection of work from uh, from a unique voice, and I think you'll find that when you listen to episode 35 with Sybil Baker. One last thing of housekeeping: if you think this episode will uh, will resonate with somebody, share it. Encourage people to subscribe so we can keep this thing going. So it doesn't feel like I'm just shouting out into the void. Um, though the void can off can be uh, can be a good friend sometimes. All right, enough weirdness. Episode 35, Sybil Baker. Hit it. That's correct. You cool. sound great. Fantastic. Well, that that's very very kind of you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, uh, I. I, I finished up the essays and um before we get to get granular on that um i kind of wanted to get a sense of uh where do you turn to for inspiration huh um for fiction or nonfiction? would you say uh let's um we'll start with nonfiction. okay well yeah. actually um, actually it's probably both the same actually so I'll, I'll backtrack and say it's for both which is um it seems you know, each project that I've worked on is different, but definitely um, place has had a um, has definitely defined most of my writing in some way. So um, before this nonfiction book, I had um, I had three um, novels or novel and stories out, and those all take place in Asia because I lived in South Korea for twelve years. Mm. And traveled around there, and so because that was the area I lived in, it wasn't me trying to write about something exotic. It was just where I lived, um, but it was a, a place I wanted to get to know better. And then with this uh, immigration essays, and then I also have a novel coming out with CNR, which is finished, but we're just waiting. Um, you know, obviously we don't want to release them at the same time. And that novel also takes place in Chattanooga and deals with some of the same themes as in the nonfiction. And I think that that I didn't start writing about Chattanooga until about five or six years after I'd lived here. And, um, it takes a little while for me to, you know, to get that distance to write about a place. But I think that is definitely one of the things that, um, um, kind of, uh, gets, it gets my inspiration. And then, um, Beyond that, um, sometimes like with a with a, my last novel that came out, it was a painting in a museum, and I started asking questions about the painting. There was two girls in there, and I was just wanted to find out who they were, and that was that was how the no, that novel started. That's uh, that's interesting because a, a lot of uh, a lot of good magazine journalism sometimes comes out of that very question. Um, I guess specifically thinking of like one of my heroes, John McPhee. And uh-huh. um, like one of my favorite books that he wrote was uh, Oranges. I don't know if you've read that or heard of it. Yeah, but I'll definitely check it out. 
Yeah, it's just it's a it's a short little book, uh, maybe 120 pages or so, give or take, and it's okay. it's just about oranges and uh and how the the science of orange juice and the way the the fruit had proliferated through history and how it's traveled around the world. So it's kind of like you like seeing this painting and asking questions and then getting going real deep into it. And there's ways you can do that with through imagination and research and other times just pure factual research. But it's always interesting to see what where where are those little kernels and like how you go about popping them is uh is pretty sure. is pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. And I think I think most writers um would agree that um you know, for me at least writing is um an act of discovery. So, you know, we're asking questions and we're trying to discover something, hopefully. And um, in whatever way that is. And so, as you said, this thing about the oranges uh, or the, the book, The Oranges, is a, is a great example of that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah exactly. It's um, that, uh, that act of discovery is, uh, is really what is the magnet that really draws us to the page in so many ways. And um, I wonder, when, at what point did you decide you wanted to take on writing as a, as a vocation? And, um, and how did you go about cultivating that? Um, that's a great question. Um, I've been writing like a lot of people. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who started writing when it's almost as soon as I started reading, which was in first grade. Hmm. And probably my, actually my happiest moment as a writer was in first grade where our first grade teacher, we would, um, she would give us paper and we would uh, write little stories and draw pictures with them. And then she would go home and this was back in the days of the typewriter and she would then type them up and then we would, they would put them in a bound, um, we each had our own book and she would type them up and then you draw the pictures again. And then that would go in our library in first grade. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was very competitive back then and I wanted to have the most stories and so um, I would go and, and you know, kind of check who had more stories than me. And um, sad to say, I even plagiarized a story from one of my classmates uh, because I enjoyed her so much. Um, but there was just something, you know, ever since then, um, I've always enjoyed writing. And um, I don't think it, it was really late in life that I actually thought about um, maybe being a teacher and being able to um, teach creative writing. Um, I think mostly I came to it as I'm going to do something. There'll be a day job and then I'll get my writing in and, and I don't know what will ever happen to it, but it was just something that I always enjoyed. When you, when you first started out, like how did you define success say when you were in your twenties and, and how did that evolve to the, to the current day? Um, I think that's, that's another, that's a great question. And I think in my twenties, um, um, I don't think I thought about success. I was, um, I was writing, but I wasn't getting a lot published. And of course this was, uh, I didn't really know a lot about how to send stuff out and, and get it back. And this was a court, this was before again, the internet where it's much easier to go online. If you know, you can go to submittable and find places to send stuff out. And so, um, I think at that point I was just trying to learn how to express myself and be a writer. Um, and then when I moved to Korea, I started sending stuff out again, or I would, I would work on things. But again, it, I felt very disconnected from any kind of, writing or literary scene over there. I didn't know a lot of other writers. Um, and it was really hard to send stuff out because back then you had to have the self-addressed stamp envelope, which meant I had to get U.S. stamps. But I was in Korea, so it was very complicated and expensive. So I think that kind of forced me to not, to not put an emphasis on kind of outward success as far as publication or anything like that, but more about just trying to work on projects and, um, and, and see where that would take me. And it was really, it wasn't until my late thirties, uh, when I, which I do talk, mention in the immigration essays, when I went through a divorce that I decided to really think more as you're saying about like, okay, I need to get a little bit, I'm, I mean, I'm enjoying writing, but what's, I mean, I need to see if I, if, if, if I can even get anything published. So, 
Um, I was living in Korea at the time, but uh, I did go to, there was a Prague summer seminar, and that was the first time I was around other writers um, that uh, that I could see, well, I learned a lot from them. Do you think, I, I, I am I good enough to be able to think I can get into an MFA program? So that was when I got a little bit more serious as far as the outward uh, part of writing, which, you know, trying to get published and, um, you know, forming some literary communities. So that came later in life. Um, but after that, when I started getting my MFA, that was when I um, started getting more serious about trying to get stuff published and, and thinking about that. What was a, a uh, strong moment of validation for you that allowed you to give yourself permission to keep to keep going and to seek out those uh, more public venues of publication. Um, I think I think in some ways I, <laughs> I mean I was always kind of writing in a place of despair, but in mm-hmm. a, in the sense that like you know not seeing that my writing would ever really get me anywhere, but still wanting to do it. So. Um, so I think my bar was set so low <laughs> that that was actually kind of helpful. I think, you know, and as I said, things have changed so much. You know, if, if I were living in Korea now with the Internet, I think, you know, it'd be so easy for me to join uh, writing groups and get feedback and submit my work. So it would be much harder to be removed in the way that I was for better and for worse. So definitely, um, I got a few, I started sending some stories out and I got them published, um, in, you know, some small literary magazines and, and I applied to get into the low residency MFA program. So I think getting into the program and getting a few stories published then was enough to say, okay, you know, this is, um, I I still wasn't even thinking in terms of, of getting a book published. But at least that um, here I have a path and here's a way for me to get more serious. And, 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 and so I think that was definitely um, a big moment for me. And then um, I think obviously um, all my stuff has been published by small presses. But or and uh, when you when there's a publisher actually wants to publish your work, uh, that's always a, a validating moment as well. I heard a, a a quote from Tony Robbins that uh, said something like "success leaves clues," which mm-hmm. uh, which I kind of like. And uh, and I wonder, like, who have you tried to model your writing life after? You've looking at those people, your predecessors, sources of inspiration who have maybe left little crumbs in the forest of publication. And uh, I wonder who you made uh, might look to as a uh, source of inspiration in that sense to sort of uh, keep perpetuating what it is you do? Well, I think um, people that I've read that I really have admired would be, for example, Virginia Woolf, um, who um, not, I mean, she's she's just such an amazing writer, and obviously I wouldn't want to necessarily imitate her um, her life in the sense of, you know, that she battled depression and, you know, committed suicide, but her, um, her engagement in, um, fiction and nonfiction and her also writing in, in the face of a lot of despair. Um, she's just, uh, you know, she's a great role model. And then I have a lot of, um, another one that I, in my twenties, I really love Simone de Beauvoir, so I think when you're, you know, some of the role models I was looking for were women writers who were maybe um, engaged in life in um, not in traditional ways. These were um, I'm I'm married, but I don't have kids. And that was by choice. And uh, some other writers who have lived that way and seemed happy about it. And then looking at their work and how they're engaging the world in a lot of different ways. And um, writers that are alive of a lot of of. Uh, uh, people who are uh, inspiration to me, and again, just from the women writers, there's certainly lots of male writers as well. But my one of my mentors at Vermont College is a writer named Shu C, and she um, is 
uh, lives in, she's an American citizen, but she grew up in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And I used to teach in an MFA uh, low residency program in Hong Kong. And she was the director of that. And she was, um, she was uh, one of my mentors at Vermont College. And I still consider her a mentor. She's a little bit older than me and has just written, uh, she's been a prolific writer and writes in fiction and nonfiction and is also really interested in uh, kind of the transnational uh, novels. She's traveled a lot and so a lot of her interests have intersected with mine and she, I've really admired the way she's kind of lived her life straddling some different continents and also being a great teacher and a great inspiration to people. Hmm. Do you find that uh, writers uh, that you admired, say, in your 20s and early 30s are still people you turn to, or have your tastes changed over, you know, over your, over your career and as you've uh, focused more on your writing, fiction, nonfiction, yeah. otherwise? Um, I think I'm not – like, for example, Simone de Beauvoir, I haven't gone back to read her. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So who knows? Maybe there, you know, I, it, maybe if I reread her now, it, it wouldn't have the same resonance as it did for me when I when I needed someone who was, you know, when I read her in my twenties, I had not traveled anywhere. I pretty much, you know, spent most of my life in Virginia, and and that she just had this kind of to me, it was a very kind of exciting life and this life of the, you know, the life of the mind and. Um, but now if I went back to her work, it would, it would be interesting to see what I think. And, and you know, that's okay. Um, you know, different writers are different things to us at different times. I mean, when I was in my probably early 20s, I loved Hemingway. And um, not. And I've gone back and reread him, and I can still enjoy him, but not in the way that I did at that time period. Mm. And um, certainly some writers, I think that I would have, if I tried to read them in my 20s, I would not have enjoyed them. Like uh, Jane Austen, for example. I avoided Jane Austen for a long time. I just thought there's no way I'm going to be interested in her. And only maybe about 10 years ago did I start reading her and just loved her. So, um, I, you know, sometimes it just depends on what you need at the time or what you can appreciate. And so a lot of the writers that I read in my uh, 20s um, I think I still love, but I haven't, I don't necessarily go back to them. Like, I, you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor is another writer that was a big influence on me because my family is, is Southern and, I, and, and Faulkner. And so um, I think when I go back to them, I appreciate them for other things now than I appreciated maybe when I first read them. I think when I first were reading them, it was more of the content and the feeling and what they were writing about, where now I'm looking more at how did they structure this? How is this working on the sentence level? Um, those kinds of things. Now, uh, something you said, you know, when you were in first grade, when you were writing those stories, you said like that was kind of one of your your happiest moments as a sure. writer. And I, I what I kind of like, what I love about that is there's a there's that innocence there of just going, uh, just writing something, creating something from whole cloth, and. Um, just really having fun with it. And uh, I wonder if even, even to this day, if all the work you do is in, is, is an attempt to get back to that moment when you were six or seven years old. Um, not consciously, but uh, maybe. And, and I should say, you know, I, 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 enjoy, I definitely enjoy writing now and there is a joy in it. It's just, uh, I guess, you know, you're just, as you're pointing out, there's a bit more of a, you know, there's a lot more on your mind when you're writing now. And, um, I did find, uh, my mom kept those stories and I went back to look at them. And some of them were these kind of like what, like my big story that I wrote in first grade was 10 pages. So that to me was just, I was, you know, that was it. And uh, it was called the talking flower. Um, there was like two flowers and one of them was talking, but when you look at the story, they're both talking. So, you know, it's like that kind of logic for the six year old. But it was this kind of surreal story, which, uh, you know, as you're putting it, as you're saying, you know, it wasn't you're just writing stories when you're um, that age and you're not thinking about how they might fit in any kind of form. So I think, yeah, I think, you know, that would be um, there is something that would be really cool or is cool if you can approach the page with just a sense of playfulness 
Um, and, you know, and on the other hand, in some ways, in first grade was probably when I was my most uh, overtly competitive as well and ruthless um, because I did want to have the most stories and I would, you know, I would plagiarize and I would, you know, my parents stories, my parents read to me at night. I would just take any material I could just to beef up my, my collection. And so in some ways I don't feel that, that ruthless anymore. Um, so it's an interesting combination though, that there was a joy and there was kind of a joy in that competitiveness where I think now, you know, the competitiveness uh, to me like feels kind of fraught and I try to avoid being, you know, overtly competitive with other people. To me, that seems to maybe sour the writing where I think in first grade, that was part of, that was what, uh, you know, helped my productivity in some ways. Yeah, that's that's amazing that you wrote a 10-page story. Like if you if you scale that, like a a 10-page story written by a 7-year-old has to be something like a 1500-page story written <laughs> written now. Yeah. Well, I should say by 10 pages it was like a sentence or two and then illustration. So it wasn't okay. like 10 pages, but and then I, you know, and I did continue writing after that. Oh, I I do have a um after that I wrote a story that that was a, like a 10-page notebook line story of our a story of our dog, and that was around a fourth grade. Um, and then in sixth grade, I remember writing a story that I um, that I, I think there was a lot of um, positive reinforcement from my education at that age for those kinds of things. This was like the seventies, and we could, me and my uh, best friend would write plays as well, and we were allowed to just go and knock on doors for different classrooms and just perform our plays. So um, I think there was, um, and I don't know if you could maybe do that in in, uh, in in today's school system, but there was that sense of kind of freedom in the '70s where they were just just uh, you know letting letting at least where at the schools I went to was just kind of like, well, yeah, if you want to write a play for this hour, go ahead and do that, and go ahead and walk across the hall, and they'll watch you do it, and that kind of thing. So there was that playfulness, and um, as you're saying, it's 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 cool if you can bring some of that playfulness back um, when you're older. Yeah, Paul Lasicki, who um, was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, uh, right. I, uh, he uh, he talked a lot about uh, maintaining a sense of play, mm-hmm. and um, I think I've, I've even heard some interviews or read interviews with David Foster Wallace too, where it, it's easy to take yourself too seriously and he's like by writing fiction uh i and even if you get a sense of his nonfiction, um yeah. it's really fun and like, especially on his nonfiction when he gets <laughs> like to me he, he resonates with me a lot his sense of humor is kind of sure uh, i just love yeah. i i love him to pieces and um, oh, yeah. and so it's i think the the playfulness is it's uh it's integral to to what you're doing because that's ultimately what you're trying to do is you need to entertain readers on some level and so mm-hmm. maintaining that sense of play and fun is is a uh, oh it's really important you know you because in some in some sense you want to please yourself artistically but you also need to like also keep in mind that there's someone on the receiving end of that art and you I think in some levels you do want to keep them in mind and keep them entertained and, and baited and if they sense that you're having fun, it becomes a good experience for them. Sure. I think that's a really good point. And I think that, um, or I'd like to believe that the reader can tell if you're enjoying the piece, that you're, if, you're, if you're emotionally engaged with the piece. And that means either, you know, through play or this questioning or discovery. And if you're not, and if you're just slogging through, I think that that, you know, that eventually as technically good as it may seem, I think the readers can sense that. And, um, you know, the piece isn't as alive as it was. And um, there's, uh, I just saw on Facebook, Michael Martone, who writes a lot of uh, fiction and nonfiction, uh, wrote something. He says, you know, I'm less interested in getting better or worse, but more about just being different with my writing. Mm. And I thought that was, that was a useful thing to ponder. Um, that, you know, instead of just saying, oh, well, my next work has to be better than the last one or, oh, gee, am I slipping? Is it not as good? It's like, well, let me just think more, um, more, uh, horizontally 
let me just do a move here and try something different. And it's not necessarily better or worse. And so I thought that was a, an interesting thing to think about, too. Writers are can be notoriously self-destructive in, in mm-hmm. some in some sen- uh, instances. And, and I wonder, uh, how do you deal with self-destructive patterns in your own writing and and uh and 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 ensuring that the work gets done i think you know the um and maybe this is a bit of a stereotype too you know maybe in the 20s when you're younger the self-destruction can be more in terms of just uh partying too much and you know not spending enough time on the work but um as you get older and 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 nowadays it seems like it's just how do you stay off social media, you know, for example, Mm -hmm. and how do you make sure that you're not being distracted by, you know, six different things. And it's hard because, um, it, as a, you're often expected to be on social media a little bit, even if you, you know, even if you're not that you have a big, I don't have a big following or anything, but there's just an expectation that writers should be engaged. And I've learned so much, um, from social media, like I get pointed to articles I wouldn't have found out about, writers I wouldn't know about. So there's something great about it, but um, it's I think that in that sense, what self-destructive is trying is um, making trying to make sure you have time for the silence um, to have that space to work on something that you can give your attention to. And um, I think for anybody, um, you know, most people have jobs. And, um, you know, in or outside of academia and or if not, they're often at home, you know, taking care of kids. And so I think um, the the self-destruction is is it's easy to allow the writing to get lost and um, become a lower priority than it should be. So how do you manage that? How do you keep the train on the tracks? (laughs) Um, that's a great question. Uh, (laughs) the, um, for me and I, you know, I'm very lucky that, um, I do, um, I'm lucky in that I, I have a job, you know, I teach in academia so that, um, I do have, I don't have to, I don't have a nine to five job. And, um, certainly the amount of time it takes is about the same, but I have a little bit more flexibility in how I might, you know, move the hours around. And I think a lot of it is if I'm working on a project. And so if I have a project that I'm in the middle of the, the, I either, I think of it in terms of I have goals, but not necessarily a daily writing goal, but more of like, um, okay, what do I, by the end of this month, I want to have these many chapters written. And I also during Chris, uh, during winter break and in the summer, I have that's like, OK, this is my writing time and I'm really just going to focus on that. And so the other stuff goes by the wayside where when I'm teaching, um, I have to make sure that um, that that gets done. And that requires a lot of reading and grading. So I've learned to kind of be accepting and in, in that I'm not going to have I'm not going to be a thousand words every day. There's certain times in the semester where. I'm just going to be giving myself over to grading a lot of papers, but that within that semester, I have certain goals that I need to have met. And so that tends to work for me. Um, um, and, and, you know, especially if, if, if I'm working on a project, then I'm interested in it. So that helps also when you want to, when you want to get back to something. Now, do you have like, given that you have those little, that you're able to give yourself little, you know, rungs on the ladder, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you have or adopt a kind of morning routine? Uh, like, every, you know, every day do you have a certain schedule? Like that, that first sixty to ninety minutes of your day. Like, what does that look like if you have anything that is that is more or less set in stone, yet yet sort of fluid? Yeah, um, that's a, and I, you know, I've been reading a lot of books about habits of artists that uh, a lot of them tend to be morning people. So as, are you a morning person? Is that your routine? Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitively and unapologetically a morning person. Uh, my brain shuts off uh, around dinner time. It's, there's uh-huh. no way I can get anything resembling uh, construction 
done yeah. after anyway in the evening. It just I've tried. It does not happen. But that's great that you know that. And um, I've often recommended, like I'm teaching a novel writing class this semester, and you know, and that is in that class they do have to get a certain number of words done every week. The you know the shitty first draft. Mm-hmm. And um, I you know if they're trying to figure out how to manage that time. I'll, if, if they don't have, if they don't, some, some of my students say they know that they're night people. I'm like, okay, if you know that and that's working for you, but if you're not sure, do the morning thing. And I think as a default for people who are trying to, um, to find a time to write that, that the morning by nighttime, as you, as you point out, either their brain's done or you just other things happen. So to get back to me, um, the, I, I, what I, ideally what I do is, um, I'll get up at six and I have a friend that comes over and we do a quick, we do like a 30 minute workout. And then I, um, uh, these days I've been, uh, reading the paper with my husband and, um, then, and then I'll get, then I'll get to the writing. And, um, if I'm in a project that I know that I need, you know, either like I'm really into it or I can, you know, I have a lot of momentum, then I'll just get up and, um, and I don't do that workout every day. Um, I'll get up and, um, not do the paper and the coffee and and that kind of thing. Um, then I'll just go and get the writing done. But as you said, I think, um, for me as well, um, especially, you know, anytime before noon, um, but getting up at six seems to be the best for me. And it's just getting, getting up out of bed. Then once I can get up, then I'm good. Yeah. There's something to be said. Um, I be, it, it just kind of echoes your, that, that competitive nature that you had when you were a child. It's, yeah. um, getting up early, uh, specifically six and earlier. It just gives you this, this sense that you're, you're getting sort of a leg up on the competition. Like even though it's, even though it's, it's an unwinnable war, it's at least, it's like in your mind, at least it's something like, okay, I'm getting work done while maybe someone else is still sleeping. And it gives, it just gives you kind of that mental edge that you're capable of doing something that most other people can't. Sure. And there's a great feeling, you know, if you, when you do that by 10 o'clock or so, you're like, wow, you know, I've done maybe more writing, at 10 a.m. in the morning, and most people haven't even started. So, yeah. and uh, you know, it gives you a little bit more freedom for later in the day to do things. And and even if the competitor, as you're pointing out, is just your other self, the self who would be sleeping in. Yeah. So you know, even if you want to think of it that way, you know, if I'm not up at six, the other me who's you know hit the snooze alarm is uh, not doing the writing. So I've got a, you know, you, you, you have multiple, I think, you know, versions of yourself in a way. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, that's a great way to be. And I think that's, that's, um, that's wonderful that you, um, are, are consistently, it sounds like you're consistently, uh, getting up and being a morning person. So, yeah, I like to, to get up. I take care of the dogs, um, meditate journal a few pages and I get the coffee going. So it's, it's kind of a slow burn to start Mm -hmm. getting up, but I kind of, I kind of like, I call it like a more, because I do most of my work from, from home. I I call it more, I don't have really a physical commute. I call it a mental commute. Yeah. So in, so in, in that sense, I'm like taking my, my brain from, from the bed to a place of work, but it takes a little, it takes a little bit of time and I sort of relish and swim in that moment for, for an hour to 90 minutes and it, it works for me. Well, and I have, um, the one thing you just said you did that I would, that I keep wanting to incorporate more is um, like a, when I get up is do some sort of meditation. Um, so that's, um, I admire you for, for having incorporating, incorporating that into your routine. I so. rec- I use the, uh, the headspace app. I use that one too. So yeah. I've been using it for go. I was using it for going to sleep, but I do okay. have that app, and so I, I. And it's just a matter of just getting my act together and playing <laughs> it in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I did the the take ten for a while. I just did that on a loop for mm-hmm. maybe a month and a half because I was I was a little bit gun shy to buy into a subscription, mm-hmm. and um, I I was like, all right, if you can do this for thirty or forty days in a row on a loop. Um, then you can, you've, you, you've proven to yourself that you can spend the hundred dollars for the year and, um, sure. and that unlocks the whole, 
library, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah. so I, I, I like it. It, it. It's one of those things where if I get up and I walk the dogs for half an hour to 45 minutes or an hour and I, I come back, I'm on my walk. I'm actually looking forward to getting to that meditation mm-hmm. just to sort of like defrag the computer before sure. I before I go. So I, it's it's one of those things that once you start making it a habit, you kind of get addicted to it. Yeah. And, uh, my, I mean, I still have like a monkey brain that's all over the place, but it, it definitely, it definitely helps, and uh, I definitely recommend it. Yeah, so that's great that you have that that app and have access to that tool because I think it's very valuable once you really lean into it. I um I did use it a lot, so I should I should backtrack and say a couple years ago. Again, this is one of the um, uh, you know, the benefits of academia is that I was able to take a year sabbatical a couple years ago, and um, it was on like half my salary, but I was determined to be gone for a year. And my um, which I guess is mentioned the essay collection. My brother, um, my sister in law is Turkish, and they live in Turkey, and they were able to um, help me get a visiting professor position for a semester in Cyprus. And so that was the time where I would use Headspace every day. And that was the time when, because I didn't have all the responsibilities um, that I had um, here in Chattanooga. Now, that kind of routine was I would get up. And it was this great feeling, though, of not having the the day was mine. And Mm. so the days felt very long, but in a good way. I could get up. I could have my coffee. I could listen to my meditation. And then I could just spend the day walking, working on my writing. And so during that time, I was very productive and got a lot, um, got a lot done. So um, there's there. And and that, and I was doing the meditation, the headspace every morning then. Mm -hmm. So that was cool. How much time of the writing process do you give to just thinking about what it is you're writing about? Not necessarily being down and butt in the chair in front of the computer or right in front of a notebook, but just like just stewing over it and like just putting pieces together, just meditating on an idea. Like to what extent or what fraction of your writing process is, is devoted to just the thinking? Uh, I think a lot. And I suspect, um, I, I think that most, I'm, I'm sure you're the same way most writers. It's just in the back of the head, you know, especially if you're having problems or trying to work something out um, or ideas, even if it's like, what's the next thing I'm going to write? So um, I think there's a lot for me, at least a lot of uh, thinking or composition goes into my head, uh, goes in my head before I sit down and write. So it looks like when I sit down, it's like I can write. I usually don't have that so-called writer's block in that sense, but that's because I've been thinking about it a lot uh, beforehand. And, um, yeah, that, I think, I think a lot of, I suspect a lot of writers are that way unless they, or maybe they're, you know, journaling and maybe that's the way they think through things. Do you carry a notebook around with you all the time in case you get that little spark and you don't want to forget it? Um, I've tried, sometimes I do, but then I always lose the notebook. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a look, you know, like I'll, I'll like find something and I've got, you know, six random notes on it from when I had it. And so, um, and I know people that do, and I've always admired that. And I, I think that's pretty cool, but, um, I think, um, and I try, I try to put, write stuff down, um, either in a a little notebook or my phone, but I don't do it that, I don't do it enough. And, um, I think what I've, I guess I'm more of an impressionistic writer. So the things that I write about are things that have tend to stay with me for a long time. And um, those are, again, you know, I think it was um, Patricia Henley who was, um, uh, she's a a writer who was one of my teachers at Vermont College. She, you know, they, they always taught, she always said, you know, think about writing about your obsessions. And Obsessions may be too strong of a word, but, you know, what is it? Where is your energy taking you uh, for that day? And so she, you know, and I have my students do this sometimes or write a list of what's on your what's on your mind right now. And it could be something just like I'm really craving some ice cream (laughs) to, you know, my father's death five years ago and and, and writing those down and thinking about what where are your obsessions or, or your energy, I think, can really help you. Um, figure out what to write about. 
And in that sense, the note taking is nice in the sense that I think it allows people to have a lot of details and um, and to write those descriptions that you're going to forget. But I think even more important is what is what is the thing that you're going to remember, even if you don't write it down. Mm. So as you you you're someone who's uh logged an incredible amount of frequent flyer miles no doubt uh <laughs> i wonder what uh what your mo what might be one of your most memorable experiences overseas um i um i think so um i didn't i think i mentioned this a little bit earlier you know my family we 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 did take vacations but my dad had two weeks vacation um, we went in a camper cause we couldn't afford to fly and, and, you know, stay in hotels. And that was fun. You know, you still get the idea of that you're moving and you're going somewhere and you're seeing new things. And I really didn't start traveling a lot until I was uh, 30, which was when I moved abroad to Korea. And so it wasn't, um, I wasn't from this big jet setter family or anything, but, um, and so because of that, I would say my travels in my thirties was when I was really, you know, first traveling a lot into places that were very different, certainly going to Cambodia. Um, and I think I was there in 97 had a huge impact on me, um, uh, seeing Angkor Wat, um, this, um, array of these amazing temples, but also seeing the legacies of the Khmer Rouge, which had been maybe about, you know, not quite 20 years earlier. And, um, yeah, I think just, just seeing, there was something very haunting about that place for me that has stayed with me. Um, and then, you know, the other ones that, uh, that have a big impact on me are places where, uh, where I know people. So, um, you know, Turkey, I've been there many times. So because of that, I've gotten to see, to see it in different layers and I get to go and see places that I might not if I were just traveling. And since my sister-in-law is, you know, she's Turkish. So that helps with a lot of language barriers and her and her and my brother knowing places to go so that I, you, yeah, I feel like I can uh, see the country a little bit differently. And then, um, i my husband is South African. So and going to South Africa has been great because again, traveling with them, to maybe see some parts that I wouldn't normally have been able to see. So those have, those have been some, some highlights for me, for sure. What do you think most uh, Americans are, are missing? Because most don't travel to the extent, uh, that certainly that you have, and, uh, and even a fraction of that. So what do you think most, most people are missing by not having even a fraction of the experiences that you've had seeing, seeing the world? Well, uh, I would, first of all, I would say that, um, you know, I understand why Americans don't travel um, a lot compared to, so, you know, Europeans, when they travel, it's easy to go to another country in Europe. It's like crossing state lines here. Yeah. Live in Tennessee, you know, I can go to uh, Georgia and then Europe, that'd be like going to another country. So I think, you know, it's, it's not really fair to say, oh, Americans, they're not traveling like Europeans. Well, it's much easier in Europe. You hop on a train and, and an hour later you're somewhere else. So that's one thing. And also uh, we just have such a woefully um, inadequate vacation time. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and so I can't, you know, if you only have two weeks a year, probably you're going to spend that time on holidays, visiting your relatives, um, those kinds of things, which makes perfect sense. So I don't, I'm not one of those who, who, uh, you know, looks down. I, I, I do wish that, you know, Amer that the Americans did have more opportunity to travel and, and, and third, it's expensive. So if you, again, if you are living in this economy and you've got children and expen you know, student loans, it's very hard to justify taking a, a you know, a trip overseas. So all of that said, what I, um, I, I think the main thing that I recommend is, um, you know, Viktor Shklovsky is a Russian formalist, and he talks about the, the theory people talk a lot about called defamiliarization. And he talks about the writer, the artist's job is to make us see something differently. So, you know, if, if you're describing a flower, if you use, if you help us, the reader, see it differently than we would have seen it before. 
that is, it's to see the world anew in a sense. And certainly travel has helped me um, see things differently. And um, I some, you know, I try to convey some of that in my writing, but that can be done in your town. And so a lot of, like here in Chattanooga, um, downtown, we have two grocery stores. They're on two different sides of the river. They're maybe a mile and a half apart from each other. And one store is the Whole Foods. So you can imagine you walk in there. Um, usually there's some nice new aging music playing. There's a lot of like attractive white people walking around. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that's a, and, and you can see you know, it's got a cafe uh, where you can sit and watch. And, um, and, it, and, and in some ways it looks like that Whole Foods could be almost anywhere in America. It doesn't look like necessarily like you're in Chattanooga, but a mile and a half away from there is a place called Bueller's. And that is, and it has, you know, it's, it's got, it's got, um, uh, it's got a lot of Southern food there, you know, your pork rinds and your, what, uh, um, you know, pork belly or whatever you, you might think to get there. Plus your, your salad, lots of iceberg lettuce and, and those kinds of things. And it is predominantly an African-American market and, and, um, people that are, um, on fixed income. So economically, it's a very different place and it's a very different feeling. It's, um, very lively and, uh, the types of foods that are sold there, um, and to think that you know, it's a completely different demographic. Um, so right there, you don't have to go far to see your neighborhood differently or your life. And, and that to me is traveling. So I think sometimes people think, oh, I have to travel to some exotic place or, you know, be like Hemingway and live in Paris. And I'd say, no, look in your own city or town and go somewhere that you don't normally go. And that will make that will hopefully help you see where you do go in a different way. So once you've gone to Bueller's, when you go back to Whole Foods, you're going to see Whole Foods differently and vice versa. Hmm. There's a great nature photographer I know uh, out of Western Massachusetts, kind of where I went to college. And a lot of the photography he does just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And mm -hmm. um, but a lot of it is a good chunk of it's really right in his backyard. And right. Yeah, so it's one of those things where he's he gives you this impression that he's going to these majestic places and these national parks, but like so much of it is actually just a beautifully composed flower out of his garden, or going down to the Quabbin Reservoir, which is uh, flooded and wa you know washed out some towns, uh, small Western Massachusetts towns, but mm -hmm. these these landscapes he's able to expose have this exotic appeal, but it's really it's essentially like just backyard photography and it, sure. and it opens like you're saying it it illuminates and opens your eyes to the beauty that's kind of right underneath your nose like you don't have to go to france to right. to have like great food and to see great vistas and it's a lot of times it's wow if you just like open open up your window to you know you're gonna there's a there's exoticism right in your right in your backyard that you probably just didn't notice or you weren't ready to notice Exactly. And, and I will add that um, even though I've just kind of given everyone a pass on not traveling, I think <laughs> especially, um, you know, I think it's just harder when you get old, as you get older, as, as you know, we accrue more responsibilities. And I've just been the person who chose to live a life that didn't have a lot of those. Um, but I understand a lot of people don't want that or can't do that. But certainly I tell a lot of my uh, college students, um, you know, if you don't have any plans after you graduate, go to go to somewhere like Korea for a year. You can pay off your student loans and um, you can save money and then travel for six months. And it's it's easier than you think it is. And so before I travel abroad, I think I was I thought it was like going to be hard, like, oh, my gosh, you know, how is this going to happen, especially in a place like Asia where you're like, well, I don't know the language. But I think one of the, the things I will say for people um, who want to travel is that it's not as hard as you think it's going to be. And it gets easier each time you go. So um, don't let kind of a fear um, uh, keep you away from that if you're able to make that happen. 
So a lot of these themes you're talking about are uh, emerge in your immigration essays. And um, I wonder what was your what was your inspiration to start compiling these types of stories of uh, you know outsiders coming in and then you and insiders looking out to mm -hmm. uh, to the world. Um, I think this book, um, because it's um, a, it's a book of essays, and I've been primarily a fiction writer. I have written essays that have been published of different, you know, some of them are uh, critical reviews. I've had an essay on actually, actually expatriate literature in the Writer's Chronicle, uh, but I've never thought of myself as a nonfiction writer. And this, um, I think, as I kind of mentioned in the beginning of the book, this came about through a grant and um, really... Um, I had no idea what I was doing, and I still feel like um, definitely a, a newbie or a beginner <laughs> in the nonfiction uh, genre, I guess. Um, and I really admire a lot of writers who do it. And um, um, so what happened was this really was a long process for me, probably longer than the short book shows, because I just had no idea what I was doing. Mm. And it started off where I, basically what happened was I got a grant. So if you get a grant, you got then you're like, great, I got a grant. Oh, wait, now I actually have to do something. <laughs> yeah. So um, and originally the idea, the, the original grant was supposed to be writing about unheard voices in Chattanooga, which I was very interested in. But um, it, I was really originally just going to interview people and write their stories, maybe be kind of a ghostwriter. And then that was a bit overwhelming as I started finding out there's lots of people I could interview. So I thought, well, let me start. Let me focus on refugees, um, you know, which I which I uh, had an interest in because of my travels. And um, so that was how it started. And I interviewed these refugees and I wrote their stories and through no fault of their own, because their stories were fascinating. I just they felt kind of flat. Um, uh, I just obviously didn't have the skills to tell their stories in a real interesting fashion. And so, um, that forced me to think about how I could tell their stories. Um, I started bringing in, um, more literature and what people were telling me was you need to bring more of yourself, bring some more of yourself in. Cause I was not bringing myself in the essays. And so that's when they became a bit more of a, the hybrid of a lot of the personal essays in there. So I think the, the, the essay started from that, and then in a um, very early version of the essays, which, is, which were um, not that good and, and very much rewritten, um, but the previous editor of this press, Chad Prevost, read, it, uh, read the essays, and he says, well, you know, you've, you know, there's a lot of, maybe you should do some more stuff with Chattanooga in the South, and, you know, especially considering you've got this um, Southern you know, your, your whole family is Southern. And, I, and so that was when I began to explore that aspect. Um, so each one became a different thread, just kept adding on. And then I was on sabbatical and that was when I was doing the traveling around with the reverse migration route. And those, uh, you know, that the Syrian refugee and that crisis were essays that um, came out of that. And I, you know, I didn't know that was going to happen. And so um, it was an, It was very much an unplanned um, evolution of the essays. And it really, but it did go back to kind of what I was interested in and me trying to explore and understand um, maybe how these things might tie together. Now, in, in reading it, I, I kind of got a sense, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, that there was a little bit of a, a, sense, of, a, a sense of guilt, like maybe... Um, that you were having certain freedoms that other people just weren't afforded them. You know, there was, there's okay. an instance where, um, you know, you're traveling, you're able to cross certain borders, but other people can't, um, you're traveling, you know, just in various places on a certain date. And like you footnote it, that there was some, you know, major attack across the globe mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so forth. So you kind of get the sense, at least I, I got a sense that it was like, these are a little, things that are hanging over your head that mm -hmm. while you're getting to experience these things and maybe have a certain privileges that aren't afforded to other people that maybe you were kind of riddled with a little bit of that guilt. And I wonder if, you know, if I'm off base, tell me, but, uh, I wonder if that is, that that's true. 
how you process that through the writing. No, I think that's very true. Um, And I don't think that that guilt is a bad thing. Sometimes, I mean, it's just, um, it's just a, you know, to me, and then that is one of the benefits of traveling is being aware of your position in the world. And, um, you know, um, I think the, um, you know, I think the, opening that the the function of freedom is to free someone else is how is the Toni Morrison quote I used to start the book. And, and so to me, it's, it's not, uh, you know, if you just feel guilty, that doesn't do a lot, but if you can see that, yeah, um, I have a, you know, I've had a lot of great, you know, great advantages or, uh, possibilities and that's really cool. And I don't want to, if you just sit and feel guilty about them, that doesn't help anyone. Yeah. But how can I maybe use this to expand my own um, outlook on the world and to uh, maybe help other people? And I do. And this was something that came to me when I was writing because I had not thought about it a lot, but more toward the end, which is this idea of kind of personal reparations. And, um, you know, I tried to keep a lot of the politically charged words out of the collection because I feel like at this point they don't really help conversation you know like I don't think I use the word like privilege that much in there mm-hmm. um, although I sort of talk about it in a way but I feel like as soon as you say you know white privilege people already have their feelings about that and and it yeah. kind of shuts, it shuts down the discussion rather than enhances it so um, and I know reparations is one of those words. So I tried to talk about it more in terms of my personal, for me, uh, doing some sort of personal reparations is good for me. So it's not just about guilt, but this is something that helps me uh, heal to be a better person um, and uh, expands my own um, way of seeing the world. So um, you know, there's there's no doubt that, um, I, you know, I talk about my father. He was, uh, uh, you know, um, he was, you know, uh, I, I really admired him a lot. And he was a hard worker. So it's not to take away anything that, I mean, take away from all the hard work that he went through. And, you know, he got, he did get the GI Bill. And that was fantastic. Um but, you know, other people were not as lucky. So um, just just thinking about that and being aware of it, I think it's, you know, it's about being thankful and thinking about your own position in the world. And what can you, you know, I guess it's a Spider-Man would say, you know, with great with power comes great responsibility. And it's not that I have that much power. Yeah. But, um, you know, understanding, yeah, if I can I can travel and I can see these things. And so how what am I going to do with that? Yeah. Well, anytime any anybody can can summon com- comic book lore and wisdom <laughs> on the podcast is gets a big standing ovation from me. <laughs> there's a there's a great um, set piece, if you will, in, in you in your book about wandering and uh, that theme of wandering and a lot across literature. And uh, I wondered, like, how did you come to that and wanting to uh, stew on that for a while? And um, and how did that that sense of wandering really resonate with you? Uh, it, it, you and your life, and then when you saw that theme emerge through countless mm-hmm. works of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that, you know, I'm still really interested in. I feel like a lot more can be written about it because that, that is a word people use a lot that has a lot of um, different meanings. And um, the way that that came to me, it's one of the few pieces I think that came directly from teaching uh, um, as I, I do teach um, Western humanities to freshman students, and um, we were uh, in that semester. We were reading Paradise Lost. We were reading Jane Eyre and Jane Austen, and I think it was when I was researching Paradise Lost that I ran across this thing about Eve and wandering, and I found that so interesting. And then I then and then as we were reading the other books that semester, that word just kept popping up, and I just started circling it. Mm. And that was, and I thought, you know, I, I, I want to write something about this at some point. And that was kind of how it started. And then, um, and so then I added some more books and, and um, uh, that, um, you know, I love the, um, and, you know, Sheltering Sky. And um, I had just read Nell Zink and I just started um, 
saying, you know, this is this is something about women and wandering that 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 to me is going on in this literature, and and how can I how can I relate that to my own life and what that means? So that was the that was the one essay with the um, with definitely with the literary um, the literary connections, and then the other essay um, was also a little bit about wandering, and that was. Um, yeah, again, reading about essays and talking about how do we define, you know, I would say maybe wanderers in the sense of expatriates and exiles and, and what does that mean? And, and there's wandering of the brain and there's the wandering of the mind and there's the wandering of the body. And are the is it seen in a negative way or a positive way? So it's just something that's very uh, I find very interesting. And um, that was, yeah, I started from this class when I was teaching these texts and, and noticing, just started noticing the, these connections there. Hmm. And um, when you're writing this book and they're putting a bow on it, obviously, like what is it? What's a big takeaway that you're hoping people um, people get out of get out of this book? I would just like uh, more people to have conversations about some of the things I'm writing about. So um, I think um, even you know even still, especially in this election cycle, it seems like a lot of these topics like refugees, immigration, um, traveling, race, those, these just seem to be uh, things that our people um, are talking about. And so I don't, have an, I don't necessarily want people to come away feeling a certain way or having a certain belief, but more about, oh, well, I didn't think about this before, or maybe this is a conversation I'd like to continue or have with someone. Great, and um, I think that might be a wonderful place to wrap our conversation up on. Um, one last thing, Sybil. Uh, where can people find you online to find more about your work and uh, engage with you? Uh, you know, in this increasingly interconnected world of uh, of artists and writers. Um, well, um, you could. I'm on Twitter with just my name, Sybil Baker. Facebook, same thing. And then my website is sybilbaker.net. So those are all three places you can find me. Fantastic. Well, the name of the book is Immigration Essays. And, um, well, thank you so much, Sybil, for coming on the podcast. And uh, we'll have to keep in touch down the road for sure. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye.